If you'd like to hear this show without ads, there's an ad-free RSS feed available for my Patreon supporters. Go to patreon.com slash seanmunger, and if you become a patron, I'll let you know how to get the ad-free feed of Second Decade in your podcatcher of choice. And it'd be great to have the support. We have lost, or at best greatly diminished, the variety and excitement that once characterized much of American culture. The differences in racial, national, and regional preferences that once transmuted even nationally accepted styles into something individual and locally unique is gone. In place of e pluribus unum, a unity woven out of pluralism, our landscape is becoming homogenized. We are losing not only identity in place, but in time. The buildings that are gone and the ones that are threatened constitute a valuable historic and artistic testimonial recorded in brick and mortar rather than ink of what America is and what it is becoming. We need our old buildings as a point of reference, not just to tell us about the past, but to help place the present and the future in perspective. Constance Grief, 1971. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at seconddecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two Ds in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 48, Heritage Lost. In 1763 in Philadelphia, a well-known local politician and former printer began building a house on a plot of prime real estate in the center of the city, between Market and Chestnut Street, about two blocks from the State House, where, 13 years later, the independence of the United States would be proclaimed, and 11 years after that, the U.S. Constitution would be signed. The man who built the house on Market Street, the local politician and printer, was involved with both of those events. He was Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of America. And though he wasn't home much, he spent long periods of time in Europe, especially London, the house was intimately associated with him. A print shop was also built on the property, where Franklin's grandson, Benjamin Franklin Beche, plied his trade in the Revolutionary Era. The elder Franklin, in fact, died in the Market Street house in April 1790. His heirs inherited it. For a while, they rented it out. One of the tenants was La Sheva Frieva, the Portuguese ambassador to the United States. Alternately, Franklin's former house was later a school, a boarding house, and a coffee shop. Then, toward the beginning of the second decade, in 1812, Franklin's family decided to have the house demolished. Market and Chestnut Street was no longer a fashionable address. The house had been built in the middle of a piece of property flanked by two smaller lots that were attractive for commercial development because of the access to two of Philadelphia's main streets 
and its proximity to the docks only four blocks away. So the house where Benjamin Franklin lived and died was torn down. Building demolition in the second decade was pretty simple. Basically, workmen just used a hook to pull down load-bearing walls, and the place would pretty much collapse on its own. The wrecking ball would not be invented until the later 19th century. Franklin's house was replaced with a double row of brick tenements, which were themselves torn down later in the century. In 1950, the National Park Service began to express some interest in the site, as well as others surrounding the building that came to be known as Independence Hall literally the birthplace of America. In 1974, in the run-up to the bicentennial celebrations that would heavily promote historic Philadelphia locations, an architect put up a hideous house-shaped frame of tubular steel in the approximate location where Franklin's house had stood for just about 50 years. There was not much historic preservation going on in Philadelphia in the second decade. The same year that Franklin's house was demolished, 1812, the two original wings of the building where Franklin helped create the American nation, Independence Hall, were also torn down and replaced by different buildings with a slightly different character. Four years later, in 1816, what was left of Independence Hall was stripped of its original furnishings and decorations, from paneling to chandeliers. Finally, someone protested. A member of the Philadelphia Select Council, John Reed, wrote an editorial in the Democratic Press. It would have particularly gratified us, said Reed, to have perceived entire every ornament and decoration which had been placed in the building by a correct architectural taste, particularly in that department of it, in which the Declaration of Independence and the Federal Constitution were devised and completed. But we were too late to stop the ruination which had begun and progressed before our knowledge of it, and when we sought to recover the paneling and ornaments to replace them, we were told that they were defaced and sold. End quote. Of course, Independence Hall does still exist, you can go see it today, and the interiors have been restored to what historians believe they must have looked like in 1776 and 1787. But all of that is reconstruction. Some significant part of the original essence of the building in which America was born was gone. These are examples of fine buildings, links to living American history that were lost, or almost lost, during the second decade. This is one aspect of the story of historic preservation, preserving the built environment for reasons of historical significance or understanding. But what about the historic heritage of the second decade itself that's been lost? There's a lot of it, and almost all of it, probably upwards of 99.9% .9 of it, is gone. There are many buildings in sight in the United States that date from or were around in the second decade, and still exist but there are many, many, many more that don't. The vast majority of the built environment that existed between 1810 and 1820 is now gone. The small pieces of that time that still exist, a private house, a courthouse, a theater, a public building perhaps, can convey to us today only a bare glimpse of what the world looked like 200 years ago. Yet there are still many stories and still much history to be discovered about buildings from that era that are now vanished. This episode, a very unique one in the Second Decade podcast, will present some of those stories. But keep in mind, although the focus of this episode is on buildings, that at its heart this is, like every other episode on this show, a story about people. The people who built these places, the people whose lives were connected with them, even if only in fleeting or superficial ways. The people who decided to tear them down or who neglected them for whatever reason. 
In many cases, we may not know who these people are or even know their names, but these really are their stories. So join me now as we take a unique journey into the architectural aspect of the second decade and look at some examples of our heritage that has been lost. Good evening. Before we get into the substance of tonight's show, I want to make a brief announcement and read a review. The announcement first. I'm starting another podcast. It's not a historical show per se, although it will often concern matters of environmental history, which, as you know, is my expertise. The show is called Green Screen, and it's going to be the environmental movie podcast, a show where I, with my co-host Cody Clymer, will be analyzing and reviewing popular movies that deal with environmental themes or in which the environment plays a significant role. We're casting a pretty broad net here. We're not just doing films about environmental politics, like Silkwood or Aaron Brockovich, but movies that involve the environment in some significant way. For example, one of our early episodes is going to be about the movie Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, whose plotline, if you've seen it, involves species conservation, whales specifically. I'm going to be doing the history, and Cody will be doing the movie nerd stuff. Those of you listeners who are also fans of Martin Darlington and Andrew Blizchek's wonderful show, History by Hollywood, may especially like this new show. Anyway, it's called Green Screen. It will be launching sometime in the early new year, So, and you should be able to find it on iTunes and all the usual podcatchers, so please do keep an eye out for it. Secondly, I received a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. ScottyBaby929 writes, Fascinating original stories. If you want to hear about history and ideas that are new and original, this will be a wonderful surprise. Fascinating content with original perspectives provide the foundation for exploring the rich context of its genre. Great work and well-researched. Thanks, Sean. Well, thank you for that terrific review, and thank you to my Patreon supporters. I've picked up a few new ones lately. By the way, there is an ad-free feed coming soon. Also received another five-star review from Australia. Pontius Aquila writes, Excellent, but hopefully we'll have something to say of German intellectual life in the period and its effect on U.S. historians like Bancroft. Thanks very much, and that's actually a really good idea. And now to tonight's topic. This is an unusual episode of Second Decade. Most episodes of this show follow one of two formats. One is the telling of a specific story about an event or series of events that occurred between 1810 and 1820, and exploring what they mean. There are lots of examples of this. The recent Year Without Summer series, or Jane Austen, follow this format. The second typical pattern is to investigate a particular place and see what was going on there during the second decade. In this category, I've done episodes on Iceland, Australia, China, and even Antarctica. I think these are some of my most successful episodes. Tonight's episode fits neither of those patterns. Tonight I'm going to present to you a series of nine short vignettes, portraits and histories of particular buildings in the United States that were constructed during the second decade. I'm fudging it a bit and counting 1808 as the second decade, and which have since been lost. Some of these stories are sketchy without a lot of detail. There's a lot we don't know about some of them, and some of the material I do have is, I suspect, unreliable. One of my chief sources for this episode is a series of books by Constance Grief called Lost America, published in 1971. I remember my mother bought these books at a garage sale in the 80s, and I was fascinated by them growing up, 
especially the haunting photos of houses and buildings in American history that were, even by the time of that writing, long gone. Having researched some heritage buildings on my own, I discovered several errors in Greet's book, mostly dates as to when something was built or torn down, but in a few cases errors as to whether a building still existed or not. So I take Constance Grief with a grain of salt. Her books are the source of some of the material in this episode, but I've tried to verify her independently whenever possible. Grief's main source base, however, is an interesting one, and is more accessible to us in the 21st century than it was to her in 1971 when she wrote Lost America. In the 1930s, as part of a Depression-era program called the Works Progress Administration, the federal government sent photographers out across America to photograph and catalog historical buildings. Many of these buildings were torn down in the three and a half decades between the Historical American Buildings Survey, which is what that program was called, and the publication of Lost America. The HABs photographs, which are held by the Library of Congress, have been digitized and are available online. I will make heavy use of them on the webpage of this episode, so if you want to see the buildings I'm describing, go to the webpage, and in most cases you can see photographs. One last word before we dive in. Lost America was published at a time when there was a lot of public interest in America in historic preservation. The modern spark for this interest was the demolition, in 1963, of the original Pennsylvania Station in New York City, one of the great public spaces in America and an architectural marvel without equal. The station had originally been built in 1910. It was raised to make room for the new Madison Square Garden, which, if you've ever been to New York and seen it, is an eyesore, at least compared to the majestic columns of Penn Station. New Yorkers thought of the casual destruction of Penn Station as an act of civic vandalism. The 1960s was a period of intensive action to preserve old buildings, and it was largely a response to the loss of Penn Station, which really was beautiful. But of course, this was 50 years ago. Historic preservation does still go on today, for sure, but in our changed times, I'm not sure the fire to preserve our architectural heritage burns as hot today as it did at the end of the 1960s and beginning of the 70s. Consequently, what historic buildings do still remain may be in greater danger today from casual or ill-thought-out development than they were then. That's a scary thought, but I'll leave it there. Our first stop on our tour of Heritage Lost is in Bristol, Rhode Island. There was once here a beautiful federal-style mansion. It had a front portico supported by Greek-style columns, the ground floor windows topped with half-moon arches, and beautiful latticework trimming the roof. The house looked a little bit like the White House, or at least the north side of the White House. That's the square side, not the one with the round portico. This magnificent mansion went by a number of names during its 100-plus years of existence. In official records, it is often referred to as the DeWolf Middleton House, or just Middleton House, but colloquially it was known as Hay Bonnie Hall. It was located on the colorfully named Papa Squash Road in Bristol, Rhode Island, and it was obviously the place to live in the early 19th century. The house was built in 1808 and designed by Russell Warren, a pioneer of the Greek Revival style, and he was best known for various buildings he designed at Brown University. It was built for William DeWolf, a pillar of the Rhode Island community, who married into the Middleton family. The Middletons of South Carolina were stalwarts of the South, and one of them, Henry Middleton, was prominent in the American Revolution. Hey Bonnie Hall, which evidently got its name from a song customarily sung by one of the South Carolina-born residents, 
had a beautiful circular staircase, and its heyday was furnished with art and historical treasures from both the United States and England. Some of these included furniture that was owned by the Adams family, yes, the family of John and John Quincy Adams. There was also rumored to be a collection of silverware dating back to the Tudor era. The house was surrounded by beautiful gardens and flowers. It was at once English and also New England, but as I said with the comparison to the White House, also had a touch of Southern Plantation Mansion in its look as well. Hay Bonnie Hall really was beautiful. The DeWolf family continued to live in the mansion until well into the 20th century. It was still there when the Habs program photographers cruised by in about 1938 or so, and it's those photos I'll put on the webpage for this episode. I couldn't figure out exactly what happened to Hay Bonnie Hall. Apparently it was demolished in 1944, for what reason I couldn't figure out, but it's gone now. Papa Squash Road in Bristol is still a high-class area. It's right next to Bristol Harbor, and if you browse it on Google Maps Street View, you'll see boats and sports cars and well-appointed houses. None of them date from the second decade, and the grandeur of Hay Bonnie Hall is now just a memory, and a couple of old photographs. Let's move on to Zanesville, Ohio. There once stood near the center of town a very smart-looking building, the Old Courthouse. It was roughly square, two stories, not counting the sloping roof and the cupola that soared above the street, almost like a church steeple, but with a secular and very American shape. The Old Courthouse at Zanesville, also known as the Second Courthouse, was built in 1809 for a very specific purpose. I'll get to that purpose in just a moment. The building was designed by an architect named James Hampson, who was from Virginia. Indeed, if you look at pictures of the old courthouse, you see an almost southern flavor to the building. Not exactly Greek Revival, but it does look like something you might see in Williamsburg, just shy of a generation following the American Revolution. Ohio was a frontier at the beginning of the second decade. It had been made a state only in 1803, part of what was called the Old Northwest, The original territory of the United States, outside the 13 states, which was organized by the Northwest Ordinance, principally authored by Thomas Jefferson, passed by Congress even before the Constitution was created. Even at the time of the second decade when you went quote-unquote west, you mainly went to Ohio. Zanesville had its origins in 1799, a few years before statehood, but it grew rapidly in the next decade, that would be the first decade of the 19th century from 1800 to 1809. The initial courthouse was built in 1807, out of logs. Anyway, in 1809, Ohio was still organizing itself, and its capital had not yet been made permanent. The residents of Zanesville, particularly John McIntyre, who largely founded the town, decided to make a bid for that status. Hampson was hired to design and construct a grand new courthouse, right in front of the log cabin one, in which the affairs of state could be properly carried out, and in which the Ohio State Legislature could meet. It worked. The state legislature voted in 1810 to make Zanesville the capital of Ohio, and Hampson's brand spanking new courthouse seemed like it had already paid off handsomely. Unfortunately, the decision didn't stick. Several members of the legislature thought that the capital should be closer to the geographic center of Ohio. They didn't reverse the decision to make Zanesville the capital, but it was to be only a temporary capital. Chillicothe was chosen in 1812, and eventually Columbus. Still, the old courthouse, or second courthouse, served the town well. It became the Muskingum County Courthouse, and enough business was conducted there to warrant two new wings being added on to the original square structure 
in 1833. By the 1860s, though, the old courthouse was starting to fall into disrepair. The town made the decision to build a new one. The old courthouse, built in 1809 at the beginning of the second decade, was demolished in 1874. Deep in the heart of old Boston, in April 1810, a building began to be constructed on the northwest corner of the intersection of Boylston and Washington Streets, a block away from each of Boston Common and the old burying ground and the waterfront as it stood at that time. The previous year, 1809, the site was purchased for $20,560 from a man named Joseph Dyer by the Boylston Market Association, whose president was none other than John Quincy Adams, about to leave the country for his new post as U.S. Minister to Russia. The architect who designed Boylston Market was none other than Charles Bullfinch. Even if you've never heard of him, I guarantee you've seen his work. He designed the U.S. Capitol, although the large dome that most of us recall was not completed until the Civil War era. Bullfinch also designed the Massachusetts State House, the one with the Golden Dome, and Faneuil Hall, another Boston landmark. The market was completed that next year, 1810. In a book called The History of Boston by Caleb Hopkins Snow, published in 1828, Boylston Market is described this way, quote, Boylston Hall, situated at the corner of Washington and Boylston Street, was so named in honor of Ward Nicholas Boylston, Esquire. It is in length 120 feet and width 50 feet of three stories with a deep cellar. On the first floor are 12 stalls for the sale of provisions. The second is separated by an avenue running lengthwise, on the sides of which are four spacious rooms. The third story consists of a hall 100 feet in length, with the entire width of the building. The central height of the ceiling is 24 feet. It contains an orchestra and two convenient withdrawing rooms adjoining. End quote. Boylston Market also had a belfry, rising majestically above the street. The market was a bustling place in the second decade and for some time beyond. One of the earliest tenants was an art museum run by Edward Savage, a painter known for various patriotic portraits of scenes and people relating to the American Revolution. Another tenant was the Linnaean Society of New England, which has come up on our show before. The Linnaean Society, as you may recall, was involved in the controversy about the supposed sea monster that terrorized Gloucester Harbor in 1817. That was the subject of episode 39. Boylston Market was not just a place for the sale of goods, but also an exhibition space. Various special events occurred there over the years, including numerous meetings and conventions of anti-slavery societies beginning in the 1830s. An addition was apparently made to the building in the late 1850s, and it was moved backwards when the street was widened in 1870. Again, I couldn't get reliable information on why Boylston Market was demolished, but it was put to the records in 1887. A piece of the building, however, was saved, the belfry. After all, it was a bullfinch piece, and it was worth something to somebody. The belfry was installed at a brewery in Charlestown, where it stood until 1919, when prohibition went into effect and the brewery was closed. Miraculously, the belfry was saved again, wound up atop the Calvary Methodist Church in Arlington, Massachusetts, which was completed in 1923. There it stands today, the last remaining piece of the old Boylston Market. The site on which Boylston Market was built in the second decade is now a high-rise office tower and also the site of the Chinatown stop on the Boston Tea. 
Boston in the second decade was a city of churches. The religious life of the city was vitally important, both to the spiritual aspect of what it meant to be a Bostonian and a political one. In the 1770s, the American Revolution came out of the churches and taverns. In the first few decades of the 19th century, the abolitionist movement came from the churches. New South Church, as a congregation, was founded in 1714, early in the city's history. The original building on Summer Street was constructed beginning in 1715, completed 1719. One of the founders of the church was the father of Samuel Adams, the revolutionary. It's not entirely clear what happened to the original building. Probably it was torn down to make way for the new New South Church, which was constructed in 1814. It was a century after the original church was built and midway through the second decade. The architect was, again, Charles Bullfinch, the same architect as Boylston Market and the Massachusetts State Capitol. The last pastor of New South Church to leave that job before the construction of the new building was one John Thornton Kirkland. He served as pastor from 1794 to 1810, and he has a connection to another Second Decade episode. His next job after pastor of New South Church was president of Harvard University, where he served from 1810 to 1828, and thus was the university president during the time that Stephen Salisbury and Aaron White were there, the students whose experiences are chronicled in episode 14, Down and Out at Harvard. The second New South Church was very beautiful, very New England, and very bullfinch. Its facade had four columns supporting a Grecian-style top level crowned by a tall steeple. The church was built mainly of granite. Here is a 19th century description of it by a man named Charles Shaw. Quote, the first story of the steeple is an octagon surrounded by eight columns and a circular pedestal and entablature. An attic above this, gradually diminishing by three steps of gradins, supports a second range of Corinthian columns with an entablature and balustrade from this. The ascent and gradual diminution forms the base of the spire, which is crowned with a ball and vein. End quote. The church, which was octagonal shape, by the way, contained a magnificent pipe organ created by Thomas Appleton, apparently America's premier artisan of church pipe organs in the early 19th century. There is, believe it or not, an Oregon Historical Society. That's Oregon Historical Society, not Oregon Historical Society, although that exists too. But anyway, the Oregon Historical Society has a database of historic pipe organs. Thomas Appleton and his firm account for a number of them, all dating from between 1821 and 1844. New South Church was a Unitarian congregation. Unitarianism was very popular in New England in the early 19th century. It was the more liberal counterbalance to Calvinism, which also lingered on in parts of New England, though not at New South Church. In 1866, the congregation was merged with another, the New South Free Church. This was apparently the death knell for the original building. It was demolished two years later in 1868. No part of the building survived. Yet, not even 15 years later, New South Church was part of the mindscape of an idealized Boston that was already vanished. It appeared, for example, in a book published in 1882 called Antique Views of Ye Town of Boston, yes, town with an E, by one James Henry Stark, who waxed poetic about Summer Street, said to be the most beautiful street in Boston in the early 19th century. The site on which New South Church stood is today a geographically insane four-way intersection of Bedford Street, Summer Street, and two different parts of Lincoln Street. The building that stands there now houses a Chipotle Mexican grill and a Dunkin' Donuts. Sorry, I guess it's just Dunkin' now. 
kind of sense does that make? Anyway, across the street is a Starbucks, because, of course. We move out of Boston now, down south. Near Fort Mott, in Calhoun County, South Carolina, one mile south of Highway 601, there stood an old house that was known as the Zante Plantation. We're not sure exactly when it was built which exact year, though it was definitely sometime during the second decade. Here is the description of the house as it appears in the nomination form submitted to the National Register of Historic Places in 1976. Quote, Zante is a two-and-a-half-story frame structure built upon stucco over brick foundations approximately seven feet high. Both front and rear facades have one-story banistered porches. The front porch is supported by square wooden columns. Simple wooden steps lead to the front entranceway. A large dormer window with side lights and central fan medallion is located on the gable roof, directly above the entrance. A wide central hall runs the length of the main floor. It features a decorative elliptical arch and terminates in a stairway with three flights. On the first two floors, there are two rooms on each side of the central hall, there also being a small sitting room at the front end of the hall on the second floor. On the third floor is one room on each side of the central hall. Walls and ceilings are plastered. Floors are heart pine. The third floor ceiling has been covered with tin. Doors and windows have symmetrical raised moldings with corner block medallions. Baseboards in most of the room have been feather-painted to resemble marble, end quote. The Zante Plantation came out of the extensive land holdings of Peter Manigault, who was, in the American Revolution era, Speaker of the South Carolina House. One of his sons, Joseph Manigault, sold the property in 1809 to William Haskell, a Revolutionary War hero. An earlier structure on the site was torn down to make room for this house, which represents, according to the National Register nomination, quote, an example of the progression of the California upcountry farmhouse from a simple cottage into a more imposing structure. As with most grand houses in the antebellum south, Zante was no doubt constructed by slave labor. The Haskell family continued to live at Zante Plantation until about 1830. In the 1850s, it became the property of another family, the Trezevants. The house was a wedding gift to a woman named Elizabeth Baker Trezevant. This family continued to own it until the 1970s. By the mid-1970s, no one was living there, and the house was extensively vandalized. Mantelpieces were ripped out, windows smashed, doors destroyed. Many of the fine architectural details of this plantation house were lost forever. But Zante Plantation somehow clung to life, almost to the present day. Apparently it was too far gone and too neglected to save, and was demolished only three years ago, in 2016. Zante sounds like it was once a beautiful place, however troubling were its associations with slavery. If this house could have been saved, what might we have learned about what life was like there in the early 19th century? In 1811, Joseph Thorpe Elliston, a prosperous silversmith in Nashville, Tennessee, bought 208 acres of property in the city which was rapidly expanding. Later, he bought another 350 acres. On this property, he hired architect William Strickland, a student of Benjamin Latrobe, to design a small house, which was completed in 1816. He called this place Burlington, and it was also known as the Elliston Farrell House. It's not entirely clear what Burlington originally looked like in the second decade. The house was subsequently expanded, likely in the late 1850s, after Elliston died and his son inherited the plantation. 
but eventually Burlington was a beautiful mansion. It was brick, had large columns on the front supporting an arch, and with more arches above the windows and at the front of two porches, flanking the main part of the house. The influence of William Strickland is definitely visible. Strickland, who designed the Second Bank of the United States, the bane of Andrew Jackson's existence, and the Tennessee State Capitol, was one of the pioneers of the Greek Revival style of architecture in the United States. Greek Revival became very popular in the South, in and especially just after the second decade. If I say the words, Southern Plantation House, what you automatically think of in response, which probably looks something like Tara from the movie Gone with the Wind, is Greek Revival. Burlington's resemblance to Tara is only slight, but it was definitely part of this trend. Like the homes of almost all wealthy slave owners in the pre-Civil War South, Burlington was built with slave labor. The families who lived here had deep connections with slavery. Many of those families were themselves slaves. Joseph Thorpe Ellison was mayor of Nashville from 1814 to 1817 during the period the house was constructed. His son, William R. Elliston, who married Elizabeth Boddy, was a member of the Tennessee House of Representatives. During the Civil War, Nashville was occupied by Union troops beginning in February 1862, the first Confederate state capital to be captured by Northern forces. The Union Army used the west wing of the Burlington Mansion as headquarters during the occupation. It was said that William Elliston hid valuables belonging to various Nashville merchants in the basement of the house so they wouldn't be requisitioned by Union troops. The house survived the war, but William Elliston only lived a few years after it. He died in 1870. His widow, Elizabeth Body Elliston, donated parts of the family's land to the newly formed Vanderbilt University, which was founded in 1873. Burlington was either added onto or rebuilt in 1887. The family continued to live there until the 1930s. In 1932, Burlington was torn down to make room for a high school. However, a gazebo, originally built next to the house in 1816, was preserved. It still exists in the common area of the co-op community, also called Burlington, that's built some distance away from the original site. So far as I can tell, the high school is still there on the main site. In 2012, Vanderbilt University constructed a new building as part of an expansion. They named it Elliston Hall after Elizabeth Body Elliston, honoring those land donations. The naming of university buildings in the second decade of the 21st century, as you may have observed, is a fraught business. Indeed, there was controversy about naming the building after her, given the family's long connection with slavery. But that's modern history. Burlington itself, the mansion that dated from the second decade, is now gone, except for that gazebo. Some photos were taken of the interior of the mansion about 1899. I'll include them on the webpage for this episode. In Newcastle County, Delaware, on what's now Route 273, there was once a lovely house known as the Hermitage. It was located on 141 acres of land purchased in 1801 by prominent Delaware politician Nicholas Van Dyke, first elected to the U.S. Congress in 1807. That was the time he was building the house known as the Hermitage. Apparently, it progressed in several stages. Here is a description from the National Register of Historic Places, nomination form for the Hermitage, filed in 1972. Quote, the Hermitage is a two-story brick structure laid mostly in common bond and is composed of three distinct portions. The two-and-a-half-story west wing, believed to be the oldest, contains a center office with two flanking rooms. This is the only section of the house that is laid in Flemish bond. 
The detailing in these flanking rooms is rather more ornate than that of the center room. All three are belted with chair rails. An interior hall to the east is flanked by two staircases that give access to a similarly disposed second floor. The south or main section is a three-bay left entry structure with an east-west ridge line built in 1818. In the interior, a quarter-circular curved wall separates the entry vestibule from the south room. A mahogany-paneled door curved to match the wall line permits access to the south room. Unlike the marble mantel in the south room, the north room has a wood mantel with atom detailing and matched chair rails and baseboards. Both rooms are edged with shallow cornices. End quote. A significant portion of the Hermitage dates from the second decade. The house was not the primary residence of Nicholas Van Dyke, but rather his family's summer retreat. He and his wife, Marianne, had six children. Van Dyke himself was one of the last Federalists, and he found himself in office during the second decade when that party was ceasing to have any influence on the national level. That story goes back to the very first episode of this show more than three years ago. Van Dyke, who was serving in the U.S. Senate at the time of the Missouri Compromise, one of the few big stories of the decade I haven't gotten to yet in this podcast, anyway, he lived here periodically until his death in 1826. I could find little information on the history of the house between 1826 and the 1970s. The Habs Project photographed the house in October 1936, and it was still quite beautiful then, with ivy covering some of the exterior brick walls. In 1972, the house was privately owned by somebody named Buddy Deemer. It was his name on the National Register application. Even that doesn't tell us very much. On February 18, 2007, sometime in the evening, a fire started at the Hermitage. The fire marshal later determined that it was an act of arson. The house was probably abandoned, though I don't know that for sure. In researching this episode, though, the cycle of neglect followed by abandonment followed by arson is a depressingly familiar one. The two oldest sections of the house, the ones that dated from before the second decade, were totally destroyed. Apparently the middle section was relatively intact, the fireplaces and some of the woodwork survived. But unfortunately the city of Newcastle declared it a safety hazard. In 2009 what was left of this beautiful historic mansion was torn down. The Hermitage of Newcastle, Delaware is not to be confused with another historic house with that same name, the Hermitage in Davidson, Tennessee which was the plantation home of Andrew Jackson, 7th President of the United States. That house also has second-decade connections. Jackson and his wife owned that property beginning in 1804, and from then until 1821 they apparently lived in a log cabin on the estate. In 1819, Jackson commissioned his slaves to build a bigger and more permanent structure, which was completed in 1821. That structure burned down in 1834 while Jackson was serving his second term as president. He had it torn down, and the version of the plantation house that still exists today dates from that construction. If you go to the campus of Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and you stand at 69 College Street, also known as 10 Prospect Street, you'll find yourself looking at an absolutely hideous eyesore called the John D. Rockefeller Jr. Library. It was built in 1962 in the brutalist architecture style, and it is offensively ugly. But if you stood on this spot, say, a century ago, you'd be facing a very attractive mansion dating from the second decade, known as the William Wilkinson House, sometimes erroneously called the William Watson House. 
It was a beautiful place, two stories, a row of three windows across the top floor, its front door on the lower left-hand corner surrounded by an elegantly carved arch of woodwork. The house was built in 1818 in the federal style. It was designed by an architect named John Holden Green, a known practitioner of the federal style, and who also was very active in Providence during the second decade. A house that was very similar to the William Wilkinson House, designed by Green and which still exists today, is called the Nelson W. Aldrich House at 110 Benevolent Street. I can, with a little bit of six degrees of Kevin Bacon type of association, connect John Holden Green to another Second Decade episode. Green also designed the House of Sullivan Door, which for a long time was the home of Thomas Wilson Door, the lawyer and constitutional stalwart who led a rebellion against the state government of Rhode Island in 1842. Thomas Wilson Door's secretary and right-hand man was Aaron White, one of the two people whose memoirs of his college years formed the basis of episode 14, Down and Out at Harvard, second mention of that episode in this one. Sadly, we know little about William Wilkinson, the man who owned the house at 69 College Street, or about any of the other people who lived their lives there. But the Habs photo of the Wilkinson house, taken about 1936, is among the more tantalizing ones in our story tonight. Some person out there, perhaps just barely some person still alive today, remembers growing up in this house, remembers its bedrooms and fireplaces, and the creak of its floorboards. For somebody in our recent history, this house was home. The William Wilkinson House was torn down in 1954 during an expansion and reorganization of the grounds of Brown University. A few other second-decade-era houses on the same street also met the wrecking ball about that same time. The John D. Rockefeller Jr. Library now stands in their places. I know we can't save everything, but geez, couldn't this beautiful house have been preserved? Or couldn't some architect have at least made a more tasteful choice as to what to build in its place? Progress, a dubious concept at the best of times, is a double-edged sword. During the second decade, one of the biggest projects of internal infrastructure in the United States began to be constructed. The National Road, also known as the Cumberland Road, which would eventually link the Potomac River to the Ohio River. Construction began in 1811. This was part of the movement of internal improvements that eventually gave us the Erie Canal, something I probably also need to do an episode on. A few smart and enterprising people recognized there was money to be made on the lands the National Road touched. One of these people was Valentine Wilson, a self-made man, born in Virginia, whose family settled in Greene County, Ohio. In 1816, Wilson went to Madison County, where the National Road was planned, and bought farmland around it. Originally, Valentine Wilson's farm was 160 acres, but by the end of his life in 1855, he owned 7,000 acres and was the richest man in Madison County. In 1820, at the end of the second decade, Valentine Wilson built his farmhouse on the north side of where the National Road would eventually go. It was a simple house, made of brick and wood, two stories, what they call a hall and parlor design. I was only able to find one picture of it, probably taken in some long-ago winter during the mid-19th century. The house had two chimneys and simple square windows and doors. Apparently, the Valentine Wilson house remained essentially unchanged for a long time. All the other buildings profiled here underwent construction or reconstruction from their original forms, but apparently this house didn't remained frozen in time, essentially unchanged. It was still like that in 1973 when it was put on the National Register of Historic Places. I couldn't find out what happened to the Valentine Wilson house. 
It was demolished sometime after 1973 and ultimately delisted from the National Register. The site where it once stood is just an open field now, between Interstate 70, which is what the National Road eventually became, and the Summerford Township Cemetery. Valentine Wilson's house is a vanished memory of what America was like in that first pulse of westward expansion after the Revolution. Like several others profiled in this episode, this house almost made it into the modern era and was almost able to tell the stories of its past, but not quite. These nine stories of buildings from the second decade that no longer exist are a very, very small part of a much larger tapestry. The world that existed in the 18-teens has very few physical remnants left that have survived into our own time. But there are some that have. Perhaps this very small taste of our heritage lost will help encourage appreciation for the architectural heritage of the time that does still exist, and hopefully will continue to exist for a long time. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor, leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Play. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. I'd love for you to become a supporter on my Patreon. You can find me there at patreon.com slash seanmunger. And yes, an ad-free feed of all the Second Decade back catalog is coming. My historical sources for this episode include Lost America, a two-volume series by Constance M. Grief, Pine Press, Princeton, New Jersey, 1971. There are also numerous blog posts about specific buildings that were helpful, and the records of the Historic American Building Survey, digitized on the Library of Congress website, and digitized copies of nomination forms from the National Register of Historic Places. Music Credits Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.